Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Pleased to be joined uh, today by Ann Burroughs, President and CEO of the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles and newly elected chair of the Global Assembly of Amnesty International. She gave a keynote speech for the Tanner Center for Human Rights Lecture Series. Interesting uh, title, interesting speech. Never Again is Now is the title, Remembering and Reaffirming Our Collective Commitment to Protecting Civil Rights. Ann Burroughs grew up in South Africa. She was arrested and jailed as a political prisoner because of her opposition to apartheid, and she was just 22 years old at the time was released after Amnesty International took up her case. So, uh, Ann Burroughs, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. It's very good to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. So this is a uh, provocative title, Never Again Is Now. I think one of the key uh, points is uh, that there's relevance to today and uh, we need to remember, uh, speaking specifically of uh, the Japanese-American internment during World War II and many other abuses that have gone on. Yes, yes, that's right. You know, we thought as we were thinking about what to, um, you know, what the title should be for for the for the lecture. It just felt that there were so many resonances um, with the past, um, and I think certainly in terms of the Japanese American experience, you know, we know at the museum, and certainly, you know, you don't have to be a student of history to understand that history has a way of repeating itself, both the good and the bad, and that there are very specific things that one can do and watch out for um, to make sure that the, you know, that the, that the tragedies of history are never repeated. And the parallels between what happened to Japanese Americans in the Second World War um, with the internment um, and the kind of rollback of rights that we were seeing then and the kind of climate that gave that gave rise or that allowed for their incarceration are very similar to some of the rollbacks of rights that we're seeing now. Um, And certainly the climate, um, the climate is very similar. So it's, it's that thing of remembering history. It's looking at, you know, straight into the eye of history, understanding what history teaches us, both in terms of how, you know, it influences the present, present, but also very much how it shapes the future. I want to review a bit of the history. Uh, I thought I knew this history pretty well, um, but as I went to, I went to the website for the Japanese American National uh, Museum and uh, some exhibits there, I learned a few things. Um, and you talk about, uh, quoting you, that Executive Order 9066, signed by President Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1942, was unbelievably stark in its ordinariness, a banal government document. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about the climate, that, and, and, and you've also said it's easier than we would uh, hope, easier than we might expect uh, for a, such a climate to, um, uh, to, to exist, to appear. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if one, looked at, if one looks at the historical context, obviously, you know, it happened um, during the Second World War, it happened after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, um, and it was at a time when when the U.S. was was at war. But what was also happening then was that there was, you know, no question, and history has has proved this right that the impetus for it was, or the impetus for the climate really was, you know, was war hysteria, was um, racial uh, racial prejudice, and failed political leadership. Um, and that's been, you know, that's been sort of acknowledged 
across the board. And, you know, what was extraordinary for me to see the Executive Order 9066, um, you know, we had the we had an exhibition at the at the museum to coincide with the 75th anniversary of this, and we actually had the original document or, you know, the primary pages of the original document on loan from the National Archive. And, you know, you saw at the bottom, you know, President Roosevelt's signature, and I mean, literally... It was, as I, as you know, as you read in the quote, an extraordinarily banal document. It looked like any, you know, document that was typed up on a, you know, government issue typewriter at that time. But if you understand what the consequences were of that signature, and you know, the consequences, the fact that it meant that 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry were summarily, you know, removed from their communities, removed from their homes, and incarcerated in. Um, in concentration camps, you know, all up and down the, all up and down the, primarily the west coast of the country, but also in, in other parts as well. And what was, I mean, again, there, it's those parallels with that never again, because it was happened, you know, we had the exhibition, the 75th anniversary was around the time where, you know, the executive order on the travel ban was coming out, um, had just come out, and there was a sense that there was policy being made, you know, at the whim of, of leadership. Um, and, you know, decree by executive order. And we had this extraordinary things that happened for us at, at the museum, um, you know, around that time, because, of course, we had, we have about 20,000 school children that come to, to the museum, you know, with school trips on, on a daily basis. And, of course, given the climate at that point, you know, 18 months or a year ago, in February, um, a year ago, you know, with the travel bans, with, the um you know the the decrees that were coming out around um around immigration and around deportations and you know many of the children that come to the museum um come from title 1 schools and you know for many of them the threat of deportation for family members parents aunts uncles grandparents was was very very real and one of the powerful things that we've always been able to do at the museum is when school children come you know, is to be able to say to them that we are here to make sure the reason the museum exists is to make sure that no other group is ever similarly targeted. And, of course, we have these extraordinarily powerful exhibitions um, in the museum, this extraordinary powerful exhibit of the camps, and there's a, we actually have a scale model of, of the, 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 the Manzanar camp. And these school children are coming in, and, of course, we felt that we, it was very hard for us to be able to say that again. Because you know they're living, they were living with a reality that was just so different, um, and you know certainly for us it just brought so powerfully into focus um, what can happen um, and what the consequences are, and just how toxic the environment and climate can be that enables um, something like that to happen. One of the exhibitions uh, at the museum. Uh, is titled Instructions to All Persons. And you want to talk about uh, <laughs> banal, but, but, but impactful. Uh, th- tell me, what, uh, why was that titled that way? So that was the um, exhibition commemorating the signing of the Executive Order 9066. And that was because, you know, um, within a very short period of time after the after the order was, um, after the executive order was signed, there were these posters, um, you know, instructions, I mean, it was titled Instructions to All Persons, and they were put up in communities up and down the West Coast, 
in Japanese American communities up and down the West Coast. And essentially, it was, you know, they they were sort of customized to um, indicate where um, people of Japanese ancestry had to report, um, you know, in whatever district or whatever community they were. And there were also very instructions about, very clear instructions about, you know, what they could take with them and what they could carry with them. Um, you know, and there was a period where that poster, instructions to all persons, was, you know, visible. They just sort of popped up and they were visible there. And, um, you know, we have, there, we have several, we have many docents at the museum, probably about 120 docents. And, you know, over the years it's decreasing, decreasing now, but, you know, we have many docents who were children in camps and many of them actually remember those posters going up. And, you know, questioning what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to be an enemy alien? Um, you know, people that had been born here, people that were citizens, um, you know, parents who'd adopted this country as, you know, the country of their heart might not have been the country of their birth, but suddenly they were enemy aliens within their own country. You know, their rights were stripped away, their citizenship was stripped away. You know, there was a sort of suspension of due process. So it was extraordinarily frightening. You know, it was the implementation um, the sort of first precursor of the implementation of of, of Executive Order 9066. Uh, I wanted to quote you again. Um, you've said um, it's, um, I'll just quote this, uh, interment of 120,000 Japanese Americans during World War II shows how easily a climate of hatred and fear can be created. We talked a little bit about that. You've gone to say, and how easily rhetoric can normalize division and exclusion. How easily that same rhetoric can drive acceptance and submissiveness. And again, we like to think we're above this, but how easily that can that can come back. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it is. It's a. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's actually quite terrifying. I mean, there's. You know. You know, at, the, at sort of the most sort of simple level, if you think about language, you know, language is. You know, language can so easily. Um, you know, create create reality um you know that that climate i mean again we've seen that you know the corrosive power of prejudice and discrimination you know how you know explicit racism has returned to public discourse you know we're seeing the shredding of the truth and you know also the consequences of 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 public policy when it's shaped by that you know exact bigotry and and hatred and it was that kind of climate that made it possible for um, Japanese Americans to be incarcerated um, you know and again it's 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 you know that that white supremacy has crept out of the shadows again you know it's back on our streets it's into public discourse and it's it's shaping it's shaping public policy um, you know and leadership doesn't just happen. Um, you know, leaders don't just happen. I mean, they're there for a reason and they're there, you know, in a democracy, people vote for them. And, um, you know, but it's, you know, it's leaders who shape that policy and it's the climate that drives that policy. So the title of the talk, Never Again Is Now, um, how how do we uh, ensure that history doesn't repeat itself? How, how what, you know, what can ordinary citizens do? What would you suggest? Mm-hmm. Gosh, you know, I don't know that there's a, I don't know that anyone has has the prescription, but certainly, you know, there are so many lessons that we can learn from history, both the lessons from here in in this country and and lessons from 
from other countries as well, you know. And, you know, if nothing else, history teaches us that freedoms are very fragile, you know, and that they are um, never more at risk than when we, when people don't stand up, stand up and speak and confront that injustice. Um, you know, I'll never forget Archbishop Tutu always used to say very loudly and clearly that if you if you stay neutral in the face of injustice, you know, you choose to stand with the oppressor. And that was very real in South Africa. And I think that that's very real, you know, in countries all over the world. Um, and I think it is about fundamental choices of whether one chooses to remain silent um, in the face of, you know, cruel and inhuman policy. You know, do we remain silent when we see children being separated from their parents who are seeking asylum? You know, do we remain silent when we see prison camps being constructed to house these children across the country? Um, you know, do we do we remain silent when, you know, what's happening now, um, you know, history may well judge as, as a crime against humanity. Um, you know, the large-scale separation of, of parents from their children and the consequences for, for those children. Um, you know, I think that the other thing for me that is just extraordinarily powerful and, you know, from my own experience with with amnesty, you know, a vibrant democracy depends absolutely for its existence on freedom of expression, you know, on the ability to hold open protest spaces safe, um, you know, for the, the, the ability for the press and for citizens to have, you know, completely unfettered access to information, to truth, you know, to safe spaces for dialogue and protest. Um, I think that just by people going out to vote, you know, exercising their civic responsibilities and civic duties, engaging in their communities. Those are all extraordinarily, extraordinarily powerful um, things for people to do, and they, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't ever be underestimated. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Ann Burroughs, president and CEO of the Japanese-American National Museum in Los Angeles, newly elected chair of the Global Assembly of Amnesty International. Uh, she gave a talk on August 30th um, at University of Utah for the Tanner Center for Human Rights Lecture Series, and I spoke to her on that day. We'll be talking more about internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. We'll talk about apartheid. Um, and Burroughs grew up in South Africa and was arrested and jailed as a political prisoner because of her opposition to apartheid. And we'll be talking about the work of Amnesty International as well following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU School of Applied Sciences, Technology, and Education, Agricultural Communicators of Tomorrow Chapter, provides member social and educational activities and networking with agricultural communication professionals. Did you know that researchers are developing apps to help with depression? Studies have found that online programs can help people learn acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, which has been proven to help with a variety of mental health issues, including depression and anxiety. People who are unsure about starting therapy can first learn ACT skills using an online program and then progress to therapy sessions. The ACT model teaches skills that can be applied in a variety of ways, such as mindfulness, time management, and handling challenging emotions. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah.
Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September of last year. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, this hour we're talking with Ann Burroughs, president and CEO of the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles and newly elected chair of the Global Assembly of Amnesty International. She gave a keynote speech recently for the Tanner Center for Human Rights Lecture Series at University of Utah. That talk was titled, Never Again Is Now, Remembering and Reaffirming Our Collective Commitment to Protecting Civil Rights. There's a, um, I'm just reading from this exhibit, we talked about uh, instructions to all person that was up at the... uh, Japanese American uh, National Museum in Los Angeles. So this interested me a lot. Um, Artworks up by Wendy uh, Maruyama and uh, Miki Saijo, according to this uh, this little blurb, will form the substance of the exhibition, which will ask viewers how they might respond if presented with similar instructions today. And again, the those posters uh, said instructions to all persons of Japanese ancestry. I don't know if you've uh, if you got any feedback on that. What what people are, you know encouraged to think about that, and what anybody said. Well, yes, you know it was it was interesting because it there were there were so many different responses. Um, there were so many different responses. You know, there were responses from you know people talking about their own. Um, um, you know, their own experiences from, you know, teenagers, younger kids through to adults. Um, you know, there were responses to, to the exhibition, what the exhibition meant to them. There were responses to, you know, the current climate. Um, there were responses about fear. There were responses about, you know, people talked about sense of insecurity um, and identity. You know, identity was a very big thing and, and the sense of being discriminated against was also was also a powerful thread that ran through it. Hmm. Uh, I want to bring up another point that's that's brought up nowadays. I think on on many social justice issues. Um, well, let me just phrase it this way: um, There's another exhibit up, or was uh, 30 Years of Civil Liberties uh, Act uh, of 1988. This was the act in which uh, the Japanese Americans in cars interned were given an apology and uh, some mm-hmm. some reparations. Uh, so success there, but uh, you know, I hear some people saying on many issues, "Why can't we just leave the past in the past? Why do we uh, constantly have to, you know, um, uh, revisit that wound? Can't we finally move on?" Um, uh, may, maybe ask you about the importance of uh, things like the Civil Liberties Act of uh, of 1988. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I it was. It was extraordinarily powerful. I obviously wasn't, you know, I wasn't at the museum then, and I was still living in South Africa 30 years ago. But, you know, the exhibition has been has been so powerful. It's been such a, you know, the whole redress movement within the Japanese-American community was so extraordinarily powerful. And, you know, while I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't presume to speak on behalf of Japanese-Americans, I can speak on behalf of, you know, of the museum itself. But, you know, so many of the people who were either in camp or whose parents were in camp um, or who were involved in um, in the campaign and the mobilization around redress, you know, they have talked very eloquently about how how healing that whole process was. And even although it might have been, you know, the 
incarceration might have been, you know, all those years ago, um, for the the community to be able to come together and to be able to talk about what had been so extraordinarily painful um, and, you know, to talk about, for many people have talked about the shame that their parents felt and the embarrassment that they felt about being, um, about being incarcerated. But that mobilization enabled them to sort of turn that into, you know, into a, a sort of spirit that that was not going to happen again um, and that what happened was wrong and that there needed to be an effort to make it right. And it was that mobilization that resulted in um, the Civil Liberties Act, which, you know, provided financial reparations um, to to people who'd been incarcerated. But it was also just as much about righting a great wrong and, you know, restoring the honor of an entire community. You know, when when um, President Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act, you know, he, he said, and, you know, for here, for here we admit a wrong. You know, here we affirm our commitment as a nation to equal justice under the law, which is an extraordinary thing for um, uh, a president to say. It's an extraordinary thing for a president to to acknowledge that mistake and to apologize for it. You know, and again, it's that, that thing of, you know, never again is now. We have to learn from history. We have to look at those parallels. We have to understand how we how that history affects who we are now and who we need to be going forward and who we need to be as a country going forward. It, it puts me in mind of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission there in your native uh, South mm-hmm. Africa, um, mm-hmm. where there was an attempt, I think, to, um, you know, to to acknowledge what had happened and, uh, and perhaps, I, I guess, uh, healing, attempted healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I mean there were, you know, the there was some certainly some parallels between the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the Redress Movement, which you know resulted in the in the civil in the Civil Liberties Act. There were a lot of similarities, and there were also differences. You know, I think that the 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 key thing was that all of us in South Africa we were all less whole because of apartheid. Um, you know, black people had suffered years and years, centuries, generations of oppression, you know, and for white people who, you know, were privileged, enormously privileged, almost unbelievably privileged, you know, we became less compassionate um, and certainly, I think, less humane and less human. We didn't have redress. Um, there was not compensation paid to um, to people who'd been abused or you know, who'd been, who'd suffered um, the injustice of apartheid, but it certainly was a powerful way for for us all to come to terms with the truth of the past, with the truth of the history, um, and that allowed a forgiveness, um, and it meant that the country, that South Africa could come to terms with its past, you know, that we could recover that sort of sense of humanity that we shared, um, and most importantly, I think, to start to imagine what a new beginning for the country could look like. Mm. That was also, you know, people forget um, that that was one of the most powerful um, outcomes of the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, and things keep coming back up. I'm sure you uh, noticed um, the, the latest flap about uh, uh, some some complaints about uh, white landowners feel they're their, mm-hmm. their their land is being being taken, and then, and then there's a mm-hmm. there's a backlash of uh, of of saying, uh, well, you need to go back and look at the history. 
you know, the anti-apartheid movement was enormously powerful and, you know, liberation in South Africa was, was just extraordinary. Um, but, you know, there are many people that actually argue that the, the liberation was never complete, you know, and the restitution was never complete because, you know, in many senses, the, the um, you know, the power in the country remained with the elites. Um, you know, I think that to some extent there was a, you know, there was a changing of, there was a changing of the guard, but the disparities between the rich and the poor didn't really close. Um, you know, there was access to free education and water and housing for a while. Um, it's no longer that um, in all in all parts. But, um, you know, that that piece of the transformation never really happened. And there was never land restitution and was always one of those things that has lain almost like a time bomb, a ticking time bomb waiting to explode. And it's enormously contentious. It's enormously contentious because, you know, you know, historically, I mean, again, there, you can't ignore history. You know, historically, you know, a very, very small minority of people controlled and owned, you know, the largest proportion of, of land um, which had been taken and, you know, the people that had been taken from had been sort of dispossessed of their, of their heritage, of their livelihood and of their birthright. I'd like to uh, uh, link back around to uh, Japanese-American and uh, the redress and uh, some related issues. I want to talk a little bit about Amnesty International. And uh, you are the um, incoming uh, newly elected chair of the Global Assembly of Amnesty International. Mm -hmm. You were helped by Amnesty International, right? Uh, So uh, Mm -hmm. when you were locked up in a South African jail for joining peaceful efforts to attend apartheid. You, I'm reading from a uh, Huffington Post uh, blog post that you wrote two oh, years okay. ago. Uh, okay. You say, I knew I could count on outside help from my family, friends, and fellow human rights activists, but unspe- unbeknownst to me, a quiet, relentless chorus was dismantling the walls around me, brick by brick. And you're talking about an urgent action uh, network uh, put out by Amnesty International in your behalf, uh, which you credit, mm-hmm. at least in part, with helping uh, free you. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. Um, you know, I had been, um, I was, by the time I realized that I had been, my case had been taken up for, by Amnesty International. I think I'd probably been, um, oh, it was several weeks, I think, after I'd been, after I'd been arrested. Um, and it was extraordinary because, you know, it wasn't a case of, it wasn't a case of, if I would get released, it was, I knew that it wouldn't be a case of if I would get released, it would be when I would get released, because I'd been, you know, arrested um, without charge, which meant that, you know, provision for, you know, indefinite detention, complete suspension of, of due process, um, you know, while the, um, while the, the government, the security police were trying to, you know, build treason charges against me. They weren't successful, and the reason they weren't successful in bringing charges against me was because, you know, the charges were bogus, but it was also very much because of the pressure that Amnesty International brought to bear, you know, and I really do credit them for a, to a very large extent with helping to secure my release as well as keeping me safe um, after I was released. Um, and uh, you go on to write about how um, uh, the amnesty let the government know that amnesty was watching. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I think sometimes, I don't know, sometimes it seems pretty hopeless, but and, and repressive governments are immune to pressure, 
but uh, sometimes they sometimes the pressure does get uh, brought to bear and can be effective. Mm-hmm. Yes, it can. You know, I think that it's um, it it is still. I think it's very. It, it's still very effective. Um, in some instances, it's more effective than others, and in the instances where it is most effective, is when that kind of pressure has the capacity to shame the shameless. Um, it's not always the case because you know sometimes the shameless just will not be shamed. But I think that, you know, for the South African government, um, you know, I was arrested at the time along with, I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of, of my compatriots. Um, and it, But what, what made the difference for me is that, you know, I was amongst a relatively small group of white activists and leadership that had been, um, um, that had been arrested. And, of course, that was something that was much, much more difficult to cover up or to ignore or to um, blunder through um, than if I had not been white. I mean, that again is, you know, an example where even even while I was imprisoned, you know, the very fact that I was white um, made made a difference for me. Made a difference for me in, t- in the terms of in terms of the way that I was held, where I was held, and ultimately, you know, what my um, what my fate was. I'm curious. Uh, apartheid, you know, was very entrenched. Took a long time. Mm-hmm. Worldwide mm-hmm. pressure. Um, what were the critical factors? Do you think that uh, finally achieved a critical mass and uh, achieved a change there? Mm-hmm. It was several things. You know, you're you're right to say that there was you know enormous sustained pressure from um, from abroad, which was which was without question um, very, very important. Um, the resistance within the country was also had reached a point where, you know, there was a very specific campaign to make the, the country ungovernable, and I think that, that that was beginning to happen. You know, there were mass marches, mass protests that were paralyzing apartheid laws. Um, a lot of the, the sort of pillars of apartheid, the Mixed Marriages Act, um, you know those sorts of those. There was you know three or four acts that really were the the pillars, and those were just sort of being essentially being turned over um, or overturned, should I say? You know that was important. Um, the other thing too is that you know some people say that there was a there was a, a, a sort of a, a, almost like a Damascene conversion that the apartheid government had, and I don't believe that at all. I don't think that there was. I don't believe that their um, that their change of heart was was altruistic. I think that it was very much in the face of international pressure, in the face of enormous pressure within the country. Um, but also, it was you know it was sanctions and it was disinvestment. Um, you know there was there was you know the U.S. banks rolled over Chase Manhattan Bank rolled over its loan um, to South Africa. Um, it rolled over credit to South Africa, and it meant it was a domino effect. And you know, quite frankly, I don't. I think that the the amount of petty cash that apartheid had, the apartheid government had in its treasury, was just such that it could no longer could no longer continue to function. You know, and business also turned against it. So it was a number of it was a number of different things, but it certainly wasn't altruism. And that's a very slow process to go from, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a. a, a one segment of the population to where it's all segments 
and mm-hmm. and and finally economic pressures and 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 the other things. I want to bring it back to personal. So you in mm-hmm. your early twenties decide you need to speak out. What what went into that decision? Mm-hmm. You know, I was I I began um, getting involved in student protests when I was in high school. Um, I don't know that I really understood what the stakes were. I certainly didn't understand what the consequences were. And I don't think that I really understood the complexity of of the country because, you know, the segregation was so um, complete that, you know, when you grew up as, when you grew up in a white community, you had almost no contact with with Africans or um, people of color other than for them to be, you know, working um, in your house in, you know, as nannies or cooks or, or whatever. Um, and then when I was, I actually went through this sort of terrible rebellion period and, and left university and went to go and study as an x-ray technician at one of the local hospitals in Cape Town. And it was at the time when, um, it was at the time of 1976 when the townships throughout the country were, the Soweto riot and when the countries around the township were blowing up. And I remember volunteering for, you know, lengthy shifts in the emergency room as, you know, as the, as the revolt was happening and quite literally seeing these kids coming in with, with bullet wounds at the back of their head um, and knowing that what we were hearing, you know, knowing the kind of propaganda, the, you know, that was being sprouted on, you know, on state-owned television was just, was, was just bogus. And I remember feeling an incredible sense of anger and gradually got, you know, more and more involved. And, you know, the more I got involved, the more I sort of understood. I understood much more and I, I learned much more. And, you know, I joined the resistance movement. I was, you know, part of the anti-apartheid movement, um, you know, and it was very much a move to fight for democracy, to fight for justice, and really against a constitution that enshrined racial segregation as as the law of the land. And, you know, over the years, over a span of about six years, got, you know, became sort of progressively more and more involved. What do you think? It was a very difficult time. Yeah. Very, very difficult time. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have more with Ann Burroughs. She's president and CEO of the Japanese-American National Museum in Los Angeles and newly elected chair of the Global Assembly of Amnesty International. And she gave a keynote speech for the Tanner Center for Human Rights Lecture Series in August at the University of Utah. The title of her lecture was Never Again Is Now, Remembering and Reaffirming Our Collective Commitment to Protecting Civil Rights. We'll have more with Ann Burroughs following this break. Washington State Governor Jay Inslee says he would campaign for president on the climate. The nation just has incredible capability if we have a vision and a common purpose, and there's no better common purpose or more necessary common purpose than to defeat climate change. I'm Steve Kerwood. Democrat Jay Inslee looks to jump into the 2020 race for the White House next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Coming up today at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. This is Craig Jessup, Dean of the King College of the Arts at Utah State University. UPR is everywhere you are with classical music programming, news and information statewide through their 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the new online app. UPR is only a push of the button away. 
Remember MacGyver? He will find himself, you know, in all kind of crazy places. All right, MacGyver, think. And he will just look around. Rope, a smoke alarm. That dude made, like, jetpacks out of toilet rolls. <laughs> yes, yes. But against all the odds? Yeah. He can do it. It just might work. I'm Guy Raz, making the most of what we've got. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September of last year. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Ann Burroughs, president and CEO of the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles and newly elected chair of the Global Assembly of Amnesty International. She gave the keynote speech for the Tanner Center for Human Rights Lecture Series in August at University of Utah. The title of her lecture was Never Again Is Now, Remembering and Reaffirming Our Collective Commitment to Protecting Civil Rights. And Burroughs grew up in South Africa. She was arrested and jailed as a political prisoner because of her opposition to apartheid. She was just 22 years old at the time and uh, was released after Amnesty International took up her case. You've been in the U.S. for, for a while, right? Yes. I've actually been here for 28 years, mm-hmm. so it's a long time. Do you, uh, do you go back? My, I'm heading toward a question of what, what do you think about South Africa today? Have they, uh, you know, locked closer than then to some ideals, but uh, what, what do you think about the, the country today? You know, it's it's such an interesting question, Matt, because, you know, I, I, I can answer it subjectively, and I can answer it objectively. You know, when I, when I look at, you know, subjectively, it's, it's my home, it's, you know, it's the country of my birth, it's I, you know, there's an extraordinarily strong emotional connection um, that I have for it. You know, the national anthem, you know, our national flag, all of those things are so powerful. But, you know, I also have to look at it dispassionately and look at where the where the African National Congress government has failed, um, where they've failed to bring to life the promise that was there and the promise that was there in in the early days. Um, You know, the disparities, as I mentioned earlier on, the disparities between the rich and the poor have have grown. Um, You know, poverty is is enormous. Um, You know, the uh, joblessness is is enormous. Um, Crime is... I would probably say, you know, crime is, is, is worse than it was, but also there's a level of corruption. Um, and I don't know that the corruption is, frankly, any different from what it was before. But before it was shrouded in secrecy, um, and of course now it's so much more in the open. But it's unforgivable, regardless of whether it's shrouded in, the, in secrecy or whether it's in the open. And, you know, that kind of corruption, it's not petty corruption. You know, it's massive corruption on a you know on a countrywide level. It's you know state capture of 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 government of government institutions, and that's enormously troubling. It's enormously troubling. You know, our new president is is an extraordinary man, um, Cyril Ramaphosa. He's somebody that I knew from you know the early days of, of the struggle. Um, I think that he will be a very fine leader, but I also know that there is an enormous amount that's stacked against him. Hmm. 
As we've been talking about both uh, the U.S. and South Africa and some of these issues, I, I've been thinking about um, the, uh, what unites us and what divides us, and that sometimes those are the same things. It's it's ideals, mm-hmm. right? Uh, mm-hmm. People are driven mm-hmm. to oppose our apartheid because of ideals. We have a we have a higher ideal in the U.S. The civil rights movement uh, as well. Uh, the Japanese Americans seeking redress. Um, and those dreams, those ideals of what we aspire to, but then sometimes it's whose dream, right? Whose ideals? Mm-hmm. And and then mm-hmm. we fight over that. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder if you've thought along those lines. I guess I'm not not exactly sure where I'm going with this question, but that's that seems to run through this as we as we constantly strive and, and get closer or farther away. Um, it, mm-hmm. It's it's ideals that matter a lot to all of us. Mm-hmm. Yep, no question. I think it's also, you know, ideals in some respect are, you know, they're they're more tangible because they're things that we sort of aspire to and they're things that we can define um, and they're things that we can, you know, if we're lucky enough in our lifetime, you know, we're able to bring those things to life. I mean, for me, you know, ideals, I think maybe ideals are because they're quite, Sort of in some senses, they're, they're, they're subjective. But I mean, for me, the thing really is the thing that binds us or divides us on a more fundamental level are issues of values. Um, and I think that it's when those values are out of sync that the divisions happen. Although, you know, of course, it would be, um, I think it would be disingenuous to simply say that, you know, somebody that you disagree with has different values from you. But there's certainly values that unite all of us, regardless of, you know, what, um, you know, what sort of political positions people may have or, you know, what sides they take. I mean, they're sort of fundamental values of decency. Um, and it's when you can find common ground around those um, that you can move towards those values collectively. But I think when you can't find the common ground around those values or on those values, then that's when then that's when the divisions happen. Um, you know, values are so closely connected to to morals, and I'm not talking about morals in the sense of you know um, morality, but more in the sense of you know basic kindness and and basic goodness. Um, I, I don't know where I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> and I think this illustrates that it, it's it's sometimes hard to articulate, right? Um, mm-hmm. But 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 we know that that's what motivates us. That's that's uh, that's we're, we're constantly striving for that, right? Uh, a very strong mm-hmm. motivation, as it should be. Uh, I want to talk a little. I mean, bit. I'm so. Go ahead. No, I was going to say. I mean, I'm just. I keep thinking about. You know, as we were watching those images of those children being locked in cages, you know, and those children being, you know, take, ripped out of their, their parents' arms, you know, there were people that were saying, that were asking the question, well, are they here legally? You know, are these people here, are they illegal? I mean, the fact of the matter is that, you know, people have a right to ask for asylum, to seek asylum. Um, but, you know, when people are asking those questions, it's really hard not to question the values and the humanity of somebody who asks those questions. You know, and to my mind, it's not a distinction between, you know, one political side or another political side. It's really a kind of fundamentally a, a, 
a difference of morality. I mean, how do you ask that question? Are they here illegally? Well, are they here illegally when they're being locked up in cages? Uh, yeah, and I think that's where we are as a as a country. You know, mm-hmm. trying not to question each other's very values, right? But but mm-hmm. but but finding it hard across that divide. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I want to. We're, we're uh, have just a few minutes left in the discussion here, and um, I want to get this in. This is we happen to be talking. I find out by going to amnesty.org uh, on International Day of the Victims of Enforced Disappearances. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to read a couple of paragraphs. This is a, uh, a, a post, a story by Lisa Maracani on that site. Uh, she says, it's painful, uh, quoting, it's painful to live not knowing where your loved one is. Every day I think that he will come back or that someone will tell me he's been found. I'm always pained when my children ask where their father is. I don't have an answer for them. And that's quoting uh, Sheffer, a wife of Zimbabwean journalist uh, Itai Zamara, uh, who's been missing since 2015. He was uh, a journalist uh, doing his job and mm-hmm. uh, was forcibly disappeared. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Amnesty yeah. does does work, uh, you know, trying to put pressure on governments about this uh, along with its other work. Yes, I was thinking, you know, as I was, as I was flying into um, Salt Lake City this morning, I was also thinking about the fact that today is, you know, today is that day. And, you know, thinking about, you can't help but think about all of the people who have, you know, whose family members have been disappeared, you know, and the incredible pain of that uncertainty because you never know. You know, there's always that hope. There's always that hope. There's that optimism that there will be news. There will be news, but you don't know. You never know. Um, and it's one of the most extraordinary, it's one of the most extraordinary injustices that one could imagine. Um it's hard to imagine because I have not been in that situation, but I, you know, I've spoken to many people over my amnesty career who have had family members disappeared or themselves who've been disappeared, but who have, you know, been able to, they were released from detention or from prison or from capture. Um, and it's a, it's a fragmentation. Um, they talk about, a fragmentation and a, a sort of dying in in a dying in their hearts that they that they can never overcome. Mm. Just the very end here, I want to uh, link back to where we began the discussion with uh, internment of uh, Japanese Americans during World War II. I notice uh, that earlier this year you were the keynote speaker at the 49th annual Manzanar pilgrimage. I didn't know there was a mm-hmm. pilgrimage every year, uh, more than a thousand people. Uh, come together um, out at the, mm-hmm. the, that was the first internment camp, I believe, right, Manzanar? Mm-hmm. Um, linking back to this idea of uh, Lest We Forget, or the title of your talk, uh, mm-hmm. University of Utah, mm-hmm. Never Again Is Now. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, one of the most extraordinary things of, of being at the museum um, has been to participate in some of these pilgrimages. I've, you know, I've been lucky enough to go to two of the pilgrimages to Manzanar and this year to to speak at the um um at the pilgrimage and last year I was uh, I spoke at the Hot Mountain pilgrimages pilgrimage which is also an annual pilgrimage to to the Hot Mountain um camp and then this year as well I went to I went on the Tule Lake 
pilgrimage, and Tule Lake is another is another of the um, of the concentration camps. And they're enormously powerful. They're enormously powerful because there you get such a strong sense of why history must never be forgotten. You know why you can never ever let the bygones of history be bygones because, as Archbishop Tutu always used to say, you know, once you let those bygones be bygones, then there will be no bygones. Hmm. Yeah, very well said. I should mention here at the end uh, that uh, there is a museum now up uh, at Topaz uh, internment camp here in Utah. Um, recently, yes, it's uh, an extraordinary dedicated. museum. Yeah, it's a beautiful museum. Uh, so an important uh, to remember. Well, we've reached the end of our time. Ann Burroughs is president and CEO of the Japanese-American National Museum in Los Angeles. She's the newly elected chair of the Global Assembly of Amnesty International. She gave a keynote speech recently for the Tanner Center for Human Rights lecture series on the University of Utah campus titled Never Again Is Now, Remembering and Reaffirming Our Collective Commitment to Protecting Civil Rights. Ann Burroughs, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. When have you been thirsty? Really thirsty. We're talking cotton dry mouth, weak in the knees, with visions of bubbling streams and fountains dancing in your head. I've only been so parched once in my life. The experience keeps me forever grateful for the tasteless and colorless yet vibrant, life-sustaining wonder that is water. I was a teenager, joining my uncle and cousins for the capstone event of our summer of trails. We were hiking King's Peak, the tallest mountain in Utah that reaches 13,528 feet above sea level. I had packed hiking essentials, including bottled water, enough, I thought, for the day of switchbacks and elevation gain. Perhaps two-thirds of the way into our ascent, however, my canteen already felt too light, and I was withering. We stopped to rest along a smooth, rocky outcrop. My young cousin looked at me. I'm thirsty, he said. "Mm Mm-hmm, I responded. His eager eyes shifted to my canteen hanging on the side of my backpack. My eyes stayed locked on him. Can I... His voice trailed off. Inside, I heaved a sigh and felt a grumble deep in my gut. Just as quickly, I chided myself for being selfish. He's just a freckle-faced kid who wants a sip of water. Rationing the rest should see me through the end. Besides, I reasoned, it's only a sip, and my uncle has an emergency water purifier. I unscrewed the top and handed him my canteen. I still remember the way he lifted the container and threw his head back, holding the rim just above his lips. Then he guzzled. I felt my temperature rise with each swallow and watched as small rivulets of water escaped the corners of his mouth trickling down his cheeks. Finally, he stood and handed me the canteen, with water dripping from his chin. It was nearly empty. We continued on our hike, reaching the summit. However, upon the return, I suddenly found myself alone with an empty canteen. Somehow I had broken off from the group, but I continued on what I thought was the correct trail. Three hours later, 
with scratches from mountain scrub oak, I finally stumbled across the trailhead, rejoining my family. I think I was so dehydrated and embarrassed, my brain struggled to catch up. Instead of demanding a drink, I slumped into the back of the minivan and stared out the window as we drove home. Water beckoned to me from the passing scenery, teasing me as it spouted from sprinklers and rambled along the ditch. I imagined crawling into the gas station to drink right from the bathroom faucet. I needed water. Not syrupy soda or juice. Just pure, fresh hydrogen and oxygen molecules combined in just the right way. I recall that thirsty day on King's Peak with gratitude. In fact, my kids and I have a tradition of listing things we're thankful for when we leave our driveway. This morning I said, I'm grateful for clean water right at our fingertips. You said that yesterday, they moaned. That's right, yesterday and every day. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org. She just sinks into me and starts sobbing as she's holding on to me. And it hits me that this woman doesn't care what kind of reporter I am or what my stupid little rules are. She wants me to bear witness. Join us for stories of tested faith, perseverance, and the importance of bearing witness. That's next time on the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Saturday evening at 6 on Utah Public Radio.